verses 11 through 21 as our scripture reading, though in fact uh, we're only going to be focusing upon the first few verses of this passage. The sermon is titled, The Leaven of the Pharisees, because that's part of what this passage is about. Um, But we're going to actually be looking at the Pharisees themselves and their opposition toward Jesus uh, as a kind of a first part to then looking at what this leaven is. I will not be preaching the next two Sundays. Um, I will be here next Sunday. Uh, But Jared is going to be preaching, so we'll be delighted to have his ministry again. So we'll return to this passage on the 25th and uh, conclude these remarks. But the two are going to be connected, what we say now about the Pharisees and then what we will be saying about the leaven of the Pharisees on the 25th. Hear the word of God, Mark chapter 8, verses 11 through 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into his boat, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And would someone read the last verse there? Stu, read that last verse in that section. Do you not yet understand? Do we truly understand the ministry of Jesus in all its dimensions? As we've been going through this passage, so far in the Gospel of of Mark, we've seen a number of different responses to Jesus. In this last verse, do you not yet understand, certainly indicates the response in many ways of the disciples up to this point. There was a kind of lack of spiritual understanding of, of, of all that Jesus was doing, all that Jesus was saying, even the essential nature of his ministry as the Son of God. But that's something of what the Gospel of Mark is all about. We're traveling through, we're looking at these different responses to the Lord Jesus. If you think back, uh, the different kinds of responses began fairly early on with that of the demonic. The demons, when Christ confronted them, immediately recognized his authority. They immediately recognized his sovereignty over them, and at a word they had to leave and cease their afflictions whenever Jesus was healing people who were demon-possessed. 
But think further on in the ministry uh, how Christ, uh, after he became popular and large crowds were following him, his own family members and his mother, his brothers, and the townspeople from Nazareth uh, came to him with a great deal of skepticism. Uh, They actually said about him that they needed to take control of him because he was out of his mind. Uh, Then think about the great crowds who, in fact, were deeply attracted to Christ, greatly attracted to his healing miracles. It's very difficult to discern the nature of their convictions or beliefs or the faith that they had in him, but certainly they saw him as a source of great mercy and the alleviation of mercy with respect to many of the physical problems that were afflicting them. But within those great crowds, we also saw several instances where people were seeking Jesus with great faith because of great crises in their lives. Uh, Two stories that are annexed right together was the woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years. And pressing through the crowd, she takes hold of the hem of Jesus' garment and she's immediately healed. Jesus commends her for her great faith. And then we have in that same episode, a Jairus whose daughter was on the verge of death, who during the time that Jesus is paused to heal this woman, the child actually dies. And then Jesus says to him, believe. And then Jesus does this great miracle of raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. But further, we have examples of people not only having great faith in Jesus to meet their own particular need, we have examples of people who were seeking Jesus out of their faith on behalf of someone else. Uh, The initial story we find in Mark chapter 2 where the four men who uh, believe that Jesus can heal their paralytic friend uh, find the impassable crowd no barrier to their great conviction that Jesus could heal their friend. But they went up on the roof, removed the tiles, lowered their friend down, and Jesus heals their friend. Specifically saying, seeing their faith, he said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. A great response of Jesus at the faith of others. But not only did this happen within the Jewish context, Mark goes on to tell us about two instances where this happens among those who are Gentiles. Uh, There is the Syrophoenician woman that Jesus meets with. Well, she comes to Jesus when she finds that he's in the territories and and begs that Jesus would come and heal her demon-possessed daughter. Now, do you remember how Jesus challenged her faith? He said it's not good to allow the, 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 the bread for the children to be given to the dogs. And she responds, But Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table at the children's feet. Jesus saw in her a incredibly deep faith in him and what he could do on behalf of her daughter. Then traveling 180 degrees from there, from the northwest of Israel down to the southeast, at least with respect to the Sea of Galilee, in the Decapolis area, the ten cities that were essentially Hellenistic and Gentile cities, Jesus ministers there. And there are these several friends who have a dearly beloved friend who is unable to hear 
and who has a speech impediment, they're the ones who hear about Jesus, they're the ones who know what's going on, and they bring him to Christ. And in that very wonderful, compassionate way, Jesus touches the man's ears and touches the man's tongue to demonstrate that he's going to heal his impediments of healing and speech, and he does so. But it's not his faith, it's their faith that Jesus is responsive to. All of these uh, situations, and then we have the disciples themselves, think about this for a moment. The response of the disciples, though we have to say, do you, Jesus says to them in verse 21, do you not yet understand, but don't forget that months before, many months before, Jesus had called to each one of these men specifically, and they had left their professions and embarked upon a new career training with Jesus. Following Jesus wherever he went, being with Jesus constantly while he ministered to the multitudes and and taught the teachings of the kingdom which he taught. They followed him in all these situations, not really yet knowing what the outcome of all this was going to be. So however we assess their faith at this point, they were at least faithful in following Jesus in all of the places that he was taking them. But then the last response is the response we're going to consider in this particular passage in the first several verses. It's the response of the Pharisees. Mark records that from almost the very beginning of the ministry of Christ, and he'll continue to record all the way to the very end, the Pharisees have opposed Jesus and they have plotted his destruction. Now, to Mark's audience in Rome, the Roman Christians, uh, these various responses to Jesus would not have seemed fanciful, they would not have seemed to have been invented, because clearly they would have seen these same kind of responses in terms of people around them. Uh, They would have seen these various degrees of, of recognition of Jesus, rejection of Jesus, and so forth. But no doubt the most difficult response to Jesus for these Christians in Rome would have been what has always been the most difficult response to Jesus for us to really grasp and understand is the fact that his own people rejected him. He came to his own, John says, and his own received him not. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the the Jewish rejection of the Messiah, the Jewish rejection of the one who had been promised to them all throughout the ages. How do we explain that? How do we understand that? What's also interesting that that most evident question on the minds of the recipients there in Rome of the Gospel of Mark were also the same ones that the Apostle Paul wrote his great epistle to, the letter of the Romans, where in that very epistle in Romans chapter 9 and 10 and 11, the apostle lays out what really lies behind the rejection of Jesus by Jesus' own fellow kinsmen. There's that theological explanation that the apostle Paul gives that the Jews rejected Jesus and conversely, Jesus rejected the Jews. Though that rejection by God 
was neither a total rejection nor a final rejection. But what Mark gives us here, when we come back to consider the Gospel of Mark, is that he is showing us what this rejection looked like firsthand in terms of the historical narrative of the Gospel itself and the very actions and attitudes of the Pharisees. And in many ways, uh, we can find correspondences between the way the Pharisees rejected Jesus and the way people reject Jesus in all sorts of different circumstances, in all sorts of different ways. It it ultimately comes down to uh, taking a posture toward Christ in which Jesus is seen not as the gateway to the truth, but someone who must be opposed. Really, what, what Mark describes in terms of the actions and attitudes of the Pharisees is in its own way illustrated by what the Apostle Paul says about the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the messengers of Christ and the very message itself about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle, verses 14 through 17, the Apostle says these things. But thanks be to God, whom in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak of Christ. Now, the main point, what pulls all of this together in terms of what we're going to be looking at here for just a few moments is essentially this. Jesus... And the message about Jesus and those who bring the message about Jesus are God's primary means of saving grace to lost human beings. Yet, that ministry is a fragrance of salvation to some while being an aroma of death to others, to those who perish because they reject Jesus Christ. So in this examination of the spiritual opposition of the Pharisees to Jesus, we see Christ himself as an aroma unto death. He is himself the message and the messenger of their own condemnation. Now, what we're going to do then is quickly look at the response of opposition to Jesus that we find in the Pharisees. And then we're going to look at the response of Jesus to his rejection. And then thirdly, just note some application and lessons for us as Christians. Now begin with verse 11. The Pharisees arguing with Jesus. No sooner does Jesus arrive on the western side of the Sea of Galilee back in the regions of Galilee, back in the Jewish regions, from where he had been on the eastern side, ministering among Gentiles, 
No sooner does he arrive than the Pharisees find Jesus and begin to attack Jesus. They argue with him. They seek a sign from him. But in doing so, they are seeking to test him. Now, the story is very, very clear. Uh, The Pharisees are the ones who are picking this verbal fight with Christ. Uh, They are the aggressors. And their motivation is to test him. Now, what indicates this, that this debate is not about trying to get at the truth is the fact that they seek to argue with him. They are trying to find a way to bring accusations against Jesus. And so we might ask, what's their motivation? Why this sustained antagonism against Christ? What is really going on here? What were the issues that the Pharisees had with Jesus? Well, the answer is this. The very ministry of Christ and his teachings made claims which were so contrary to the doctrines of the Pharisees and the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, which the Pharisees adhered to, which they practiced as the established religion of Israel. So we can put their concerns this way. First, Jesus preached a kingdom that was very different than what the Jews had been taught to expect. The the kingdom that Christ was bringing was wholly spiritual and wholly ethical. It, It was all about a person's relationship to God and a person's relationship to his fellow human beings. But the Jews on their part, the Pharisees in particular, they expected the Messiah to have a political and militaristic calling. After all, the Pharisees considered themselves to be taking care of the spiritual needs of Israel. They did not see that Israel needed anything further spiritually. It's as though they're saying, hey God, we've got this part in hand. But what's not being taken care of here is the Roman oppression that we have to live under. That's the real need. It's not for us to be spiritually ministered to. We've got that in hand. What we really need is for you to send the Messiah to get rid of Rome, to get rid of the oppression, so that we can be all that we really think you want us to be. Secondly, Jesus had pronounced the forgiveness of sins. Uh, early on in his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, he had said to the paralytic that he healed, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees responded to that by claiming that what Jesus did here was, in fact, blasphemy. And Jesus' response to that was, you need to understand that the Son of Man has authority upon earth to forgive sins, and the healing miracles were the substantiation of that claim. Thirdly, Jesus also appeared to be someone who was consistently breaking the law of Moses, particularly the law of the Sabbath. Uh, Since Jesus was a healer, uh, the Pharisees could say, that's your profession, that's your occupation. Therefore, you can't do that on the Sabbath day. Six days you shall labor. There are six days, folks, when you can come and be healed by this guy. Not on the Sabbath and certainly not during Sabbath worship services. But that's exactly what Jesus did. But in response to the accusations of the Pharisees and to their understanding, we have noted that Jesus gave formidable biblical responses 
justifying everything he did. He defended his actions out of the scriptures themselves, which the Pharisees could not refute. The Pharisees were depending upon their tradition of the elders and that interpretation to accuse Jesus. And Jesus refuted them time and again, even when his disciples gleaned through the fields the heads of grain on a Sabbath day in order to eat. Jesus had a scriptural response and justification for the very things which they did. Christ so effectively answered the Pharisees from Scripture that he could lay down this challenge to the Jews. We read this in John chapter 8, verse 46. Which of you can convict me of sin? And the fact was that as often as the Pharisees believed Jesus was, in fact, violating how they understood the canons of Scripture and especially how they understood the oral tradition. They could not scripturally convict Christ of any sin at all. And then there's a fourth reason. Uh, We've already mentioned the tradition of the elders, the oral tradition. Uh, Jesus, in direct violation of the tradition of the elders, allowed his disciples to wash, to eat food with ceremonially unwashed hands, which to them was, again, a violation of their sense and understanding of the law. But Jesus refuted them. They could not withstand his wisdom. Now, we can sum all this up and say that what was the conclusion in the minds of the Pharisees? They believed that Christ was a false prophet. Uh, Earlier, the Pharisees had maintained that Jesus did all of his healings through the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, even Satan himself. Therefore, all the signs that Jesus did, they weren't true signs from heaven. Uh, They were, in fact, just simply false signs. And this is the reason why they demanded this kind of a sign from him. Give us a sign, a sign from heaven. They were testing him. They were hoping that Jesus would respond to this test and fail so that they would have a solid basis for their accusations against him. The objective of the Pharisees in engaging Christ was not the truth. So notice, all of their association with Jesus did not bring the fragrance of life, but rather the aroma of death. And then we go on to verse 12, where we're considering Jesus' response. We ought to note immediately that Christ refuses to engage these enemies of the truth at their level. Because there is a deep dishonesty in their attitude and approach, and the argumentative nature in which they come to him, it is clear they are not interested in the truth. Now, by way of contrast, think of another Pharisee. Uh, Think of a story in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, the story about Nicodemus. Uh, He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He comes to Jesus by night, 
And this is the first thing he says to Christ. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now this Pharisee was the exception, not the rule. He really did desire the truth. He could easily see that these miracles wrought by Christ were miracles that came from God. And the reason he came by night, not necessarily because he was afraid to come by day, but because he did not desire a public spectacle or a public debate. He wanted truth. He wanted to converse with Christ privately so that none of this other stuff would get in the way. He deeply wanted to understand who Jesus was and what Jesus was teaching. And Christ responds with wonderful words of life. It is likely that Nicodemus is the first man to hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's not surprising then that when the Apostle John comes to the end of his gospel account and there is the death of Christ and Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man, comes to take the body of Christ and to have him prepared with spices for his burial, who was with him? It is Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who sought the truth from Jesus. But returning to what Jesus is encountering here, we see, first of all, his response is that of a sigh. It's, it, he sighs deeply in his spirit. Uh, that word is also the word that we saw earlier, groan. He groans deeply in his spirit. It's the same word that when Jesus was healing the man who was, who was deaf and mute. But here's the difference. In that situation, Jesus groans and looks up to heaven. He groans as he prays. But here Jesus is groaning but he's not looking up to heaven. He's looking at his accusers. And it's a deep sense of grief over the hardness of their hearts. An indication that Jesus took no pleasure in their spiritual deadness. But also a deep sense that his heart is moved with sadness. That here are men, supposedly trained in the word of God, who could spend so much time thinking about him, so much time engaging him, and yet still not be moved by his presence with them to the truth. But I want us to notice something. The compassion of Jesus signaled in his sighing does not ever cause Jesus to move away from the truth. Jesus doesn't respond to them by somehow trying to make his ministry and his message easier for them to understand, easier for them to accept. Which tells us this, that no matter how compassionate we may be, no matter how moved to compassion we may be, with people and their circumstances and situations and their objections to Jesus and their religious misunderstandings, our compassion must never compromise the truth. 
Jesus' next response then is a question, his question. Why does this generation seek a sign? Why does this generation seek for a sign? Uh, To Christ, it was sheer hypocrisy. Uh, Hypocrisy to be asked for another sign, even a so-called sign from heaven, because even another sign would still not be enough when the motivation for asking such a sign is not the motivation of truth. In essence, Jesus was challenging them. What is your real reason for asking me? Because if the motivation is not the sincere desire for the truth, then Christ, in essence, is saying, I do not owe you a response. And that, thirdly, is his solemn answer. Uh, The word truly here in the Greek is the word amen, which can be translated most certainly. It can be translated with utmost certainty and seriousness. What Jesus is saying is, most certainly, no sign shall be given to this generation. But the meaning isn't maybe as it appears in the text. Because we know there is an exception. Matthew's account of this presents the exception. No sign shall be given to this generation which is to say, there shall be no sign given to this generation of the type that you desire, but you will be given the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. In other words, they were going to be given a sign, but it was not the sign which they desired. Jesus had already worked greater miracles than any Old Testament prophet. Like Nicodemus, they should have believed already. So what Christ leaves them with is not a sign to be given to them then. Not a sign that would convince them of the truth but the final sign that was actually going to be the mark of their condemnation. The sign given to them would be the cross, the burial, the resurrection from the dead. And yet Jesus knew this sign would be rejected. The Apostle Paul refers to this phenomenon of the Jews rejecting, of the Jews desiring a sign and yet rejecting the real sign When he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 20, Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God, 
and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, even when Christ says, no sign shall be given to this generation, Christ was thinking forward to the true sign that would be to those who believe everlasting life, but to those who were rejected and aroma unto death. The great redemptive work which he would accomplish upon the cross and in the tomb and by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, it is the preaching of the cross and the foolishness of the cross, the stumbling block to the Jews, which is the final sign to them. And there's no way to make it any different. Which is to say, there's no way the message can ever be changed. There is no compromise here. There is only one way of salvation. And that is to the cross of Christ. Now there's a fourth aspect to the response of Jesus. It's found in the first part of verse 13. Where it says, and he left them. This is an important point to observe. Here is Jesus refusing to continue a useless argument with those who are not seeking the truth. The Pharisees had their own national history to warn them God had withdrawn from the Jews in past times because of their unwillingness to hear the truth and their unwillingness to be faithful and for condemning the very prophets that God had sent to them. For instance, God had spoken to the Jews through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7:13, "Woe to them, for they have strayed from me, destruction to them, because they have rebelled against me." I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And during that same period of time, God spoke through Isaiah the prophet this way. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have compassion upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The point of the application, the point of application to the Pharisees was essentially this. There was a window of opportunity for salvation and a proper response to God's message and God's messenger with respect to salvation, which could come to a close. Which is to say, if Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, God will not always be near. The window in which God may be found may not always be open. Verse 13, so he left them. Those are solemn words. 
and solemn things to think about. It points to some lessons for us, some wisdom for us as Christians. In, in, in light of living in a world where we see the truth about Jesus opposed in so many different ways, how are we as Christians to live a faithful witness? First, back in the Second Corinthians passage, the Apostle Paul says, we are not peddlers of the Word of God. Now, peddlers in the ancient world, like peddlers today, were marketeers. They were advertisers. They were promoters of their products. Uh, they were those who were willing to say just about anything in order to get people to accept what they were doing, what they were selling. And Paul says, we're not peddlers of the Word of God. We are to be those who refuse, like Jesus, to accommodate those that are in our market or target audience. We cannot compromise our message when we find people resistant to the truth. The second thing here is sometimes we as Christians are far too generous to the enemies of the Christian faith when we treat their concerns as though they were honest concerns. Jesus, we see clear discernment. His enemies were not seeking the truth. The objections and concerns they raised were not honest concerns. We also need to have that kind of discernment. It amounts to this principle that when you and I are having communications or dialogues or, or discussions with unbelievers about the gospel, we are bound to stay in conversation with them only so far as, as only so long as there is demonstrably a willingness to hear the truth. When we say, is, are your questions honest questions? Are your questions sincere questions? Are your objections sincere objections? And if they say, yes, they are, I really want to know, that's the invitation to go forward. But if we discern that our attempt to answer a question is met immediately by an obstacle, an objection, being cut off, then we know that what is going on is a debate where the enemy of the cross wants to win the debate. The enemy of the cross is not seeking the truth. We need to remember what Jesus said to his disciples if the world hates you and you feel that, understand Jesus says, it hated me first. But the biggest lesson, perhaps, is this. God does not necessarily keep the door open to those who are hearing the message. The Pharisees were hearing the message. Jesus left them. Now, what that means is for us who are messengers, there is a certain urgency about our witness. Which is to say, we need to recognize that Scripture speaks of today as being the day of salvation. It's, it's, it's that 
sense in which we should say we should not put off that conversation with someone that we think we should talk to about spiritual things and about life and death and about eternity. It means we should not delay under some idea, well, God will save them with me or without me. That if someone is on our heart, we need to pray. We need to sense an urgency. We need to say, God, make me available. Make me useful. Make me effective. Give me the heart. Move me ahead to do all that by God's Spirit we can humanly do. Yet in the final analysis, we recognize there are those, like the Pharisees, for whom the fragrance of Christ becomes an aroma unto death, which reminds us that the issues of the gospel are infinitely and eternally weighty. The message we carry is a message about life and death. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand it is a godly responsibility you've given to us. And yet, Almighty God, even as there's an urgency for us to be faithful, we do recognize that not everyone who contemplates Jesus comes to the truth. That there are those, Lord, who in in their spiritual setness of their hearts will do everything they can to find fault with Christ. We would pray, Lord, that we would not prejudge anyone to be so lost. We pray that we might, in fact, judge every man as someone we should speak to as you would give opportunity. We pray that we would, first of all, believe that you lead us in a triumphal procession as those who are to spread the aroma of Christ in every place we go. Help us to be faithful to that calling and yet help us to also understand the weightiness of that message that Jesus is a fragrance of life to those who are being saved and an aroma of death to those who are perishing. And as Paul said, who is able unto these things? None of us is except by your grace. In Jesus' name.